I think we certainly hope that that's what happens most of the time. It's also possible that a jury could be presented with all the evidence. The evidence is, is good. It's, it, it, there's nothing bad about the evidence. It just is what the evidence is. And yet, looking at all that evidence, they could somehow misunderstand or misinterpret it. They simply fail to put together what's right in front of them, uh, fail to see the obvious right conclusion. Or, I guess even perhaps in the case of a corrupt jury, a jury could intentionally reject the evidence that's right in front of them. And though the conclusion is obvious, there's really no question about it, they've got all the evidence in front of them, and they just flat out choose to reject it and refuse the right conclusion and accept it. You've been summoned, I think each and every one of us has been summoned to look at a massive stack of evidence and come to a personal verdict about it. When Jesus entered the world as a baby, when he lived and died, it might be said that we've all been summoned. Here's all the evidence. Here's all the info. You've been summoned to look at it and do something with it. Every single person, including you, must come to a personal verdict and conviction about Jesus Christ and decide what to do with him. Who is he? What has he done? And what must we, or more specifically, what must I do with Jesus? You've been exposed to the evidence. I mean, we, we, most of us probably have Bibles right in front of us. And evidence recorded in minute detail. What's the verdict? In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, two groups of people, uh, the family of Jesus, people that were very much exposed to his life and ministry, the family of Jesus and the Jerusalem scribes are exposed to the evidence of Jesus, who he is, the claims that he made, what he came to do. And both groups respond the same way. They both respond with unbelief. In both cases, the problem is not with the evidence. It's not flawed or broken. It just is what it is. It's the evidence. I mean, think about Jesus' brothers. They grew up with him. What they saw is what they saw. What they witnessed is what they witnessed. The problem is with their interpretations and conclusions. The evidence points to this. It points to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came to set captives free. And that's really what's at the heart of of all these verses that we're going to look at this morning. Follow me as I begin reading in verse 20 of chapter 3. Then he went... And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, the family of Jesus, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. As we work our way through this text this morning, we're going to look at a few different responses to the evidence. How might you respond? How have you responded? Here's the first Uh, potential response to the evidence, you could respond by pronouncing Jesus crazy and in need of help. Uh, That's what Jesus' brothers said about him in verse 21. They said, "He's he's out of his mind. I mean, he is like completely off his rocker. He's gone crazy. He's gone too far. Unbelief is revealed by what people say and what they think about Jesus. Look back at verse 20 and 21 again. And then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus and his disciples appear to be somewhere back in Capernaum where another crowd has gathered. And they can't even find time to eat. I mean, people are just uh, constantly coming and there and surrounding Jesus and his disciples. Jesus also recently spent an entire night in prayer before he chose the 12 apostles. He's not eating or sleeping much. And when his family back in Nazareth, which really isn't all that far away from Capernaum, hears about what Jesus has been up to, uh, how he's not been caring for himself and everything that's happening, they say he's out of his mind. And so they head off to Capernaum and the text says uh, to seize him. In the original language, that word means to take into one's possession or custody, to arrest Or apprehend. It's a pretty strong word. This is one of those um, family intervention moments, and maybe hopefully you've never had to have one have one of those in your family, but but it happens, right? (laughs) This is one of those. Jesus' brothers are thinking we are going to go get Jesus, throw him in handcuffs, tie him up, whatever needs to happen, and we're going to drag him back to Nazareth, and we're going to get him all sorted out. And maybe they were thinking, Jesus, and and truthfully, maybe it's all out of love, kind of-ish, you know? Jesus, you're going to get yourself killed. Or kill yourself if you don't take care of yourself. Or perhaps in their culture of honor and shame, they felt like Jesus was embarrassing the family name somehow. Jesus, you are creating a huge... I mean, things are getting awkward here, like with the authorities and the religious leaders and all of that. Well, whatever was going on, they set out to intervene and rescue Jesus from himself. He's out of his mind. And so I want to ask you, is that your response to Jesus? He's crazy. Like Jesus' brothers, you may like or even really love him. I would assume that Jesus' brothers did. They care about him. They want to help him. You can like and even love Jesus and you, can, and you can still completely misunderstand him and think that he's crazy. 
you look at his teachings and you go, yeah, a lot of that's really good and a lot of that is just absolutely crazy. His teachings, his actions, the claims that he, he makes about who he is, that he is God. Jesus is saying things like, I and the Father are one. Remember, Jesus' brothers have never seen him sin. Not once. They grew up with him, playing with him, working with him, talking with him. Uh, Mary and Joseph would have told them the details surrounding his birth. They've got this massive pile of evidence right in front of them, and yet somehow they, it's like they just completely miss it. And what they conclude is that Jesus is deluded. You may like and even love Jesus. You may like the idea of Jesus. You may have a lot of good things to say about Jesus. And simultaneously, you may believe that Jesus has problems or deficiencies. When you look at his life and ministry, that's what you see. You see problems or you see holes. You may not approve of or be convinced of some of the things that he says or some of the really big claims that he makes or things that he does positions that he takes well guess what neither did his brothers in fact you may be trying to salvage or reconstruct jesus his brothers decided that an intervention moment was needed and it's obvious they're not done with jesus they're not like man we just need to disown this guy we gotta we don't know him no not at all they're not done with jesus they're not abandoning jesus Rather, they intervened to, quote-unquote, help Jesus and configure him into their little mold and get him back in line. You know that people do that all the time with Jesus. Religions do that all the time with Jesus. I mean, Jesus is very much of, a part of several different religions. He's part of the equation. People do this with Jesus. Religions do it. You might be doing it. And it goes something like this. Jesus is welcome. Jesus is welcome in my life. I like Jesus. He's part of what we have going on. But we're going to shape and we are going to define him. We're going to smooth out all the rough edges with Jesus that don't quite work for us. And we're going to hide the parts of him that we don't really like. We're going to put him into our little mold and we're going to put him into our little box and we're going to make a Jesus of our liking. He needs our help, but we want him. Jesus is who Jesus is. When you intervene to help Jesus and fit him into an acceptable mold and, and try to make him somebody that he is not, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. You no longer have Jesus, the Son of God. You have a person of your own making and your own fabrication who truthfully ends up looking a whole lot like you. Are you right there where Jesus' brothers were and probably here some of his hometown friends who, who didn't believe and would not accept Jesus as who he was? You take Jesus as who he is or not at all. It's not like, well, I, I, I sort of want to take Jesus and I want to change him or I want to take this part of Jesus and not the rest. No, Jesus is a package deal and he is who he is. He cannot be adapted or modified. Pronouncing Jesus crazy and in need of help is really a manifestation of unbelief. His brothers didn't believe. 
Jesus is the Son of God. And he came to set captives free. You realize that crazy Jesus cannot set you free. Refabricated Jesus cannot set you free. Only the real Jesus of the Bible can set you free. And yet that hinges on belief. There's another response to the evidence. Second, you could respond by refusing to accept what's right in front of you. And in a sense, Jesus' brothers did that. But as we look at at the verses to to come, we're going to look at another group of people, and it's like they saw it all, and yet they didn't believe. I mean, they knew what the truth was, and they refused to believe it. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. A group of scribes shows up on the scene from Jerusalem. Okay, what Jesus is doing is attracted the, the heart of the religious system in Jerusalem. And these Jerusalem scribes make the same accusation, not just once, but repeatedly. And it goes something like this. The power that Jesus has to cast out demons comes not from God, but from Satan. They don't deny Jesus' power to cast out demons. How could they? I mean, Jesus is doing this right in front of them for all to see. People are witnessing this. Again, the evidence is what the evidence is. These guys recognize the source of Jesus' power. It's not that they are somehow missing it or it's right in front of them and they're just not seeing it. That's not what's going on here. These guys recognize the source of Jesus' power and then intentionally misattributed the source of that power. And they did it repeatedly again and again and again. I think it's a good reminder, as one writer has said, that the malicious judgment of the scribes is evidence that faith and unbelief are not the result of proofs. These guys have so much proof. But they refuse to believe. They refuse to accept it. And there may be some of you sitting here and you have been exposed to so much truth. And the issue is not that you, you need more proof. That, that's really not the issue. It's that you refuse to accept what's right in front of you. You know who Jesus is. You know that Jesus is God. Here's how it works. When you refuse to accept what's right in front of you like that, like the scribes, then attributing Jesus' power to another source is necessary. Okay, well, if his power doesn't come from God... If his power doesn't come from heaven, you have to have some other explanation for for Jesus and what he's doing. If you won't accept that Jesus' power is from heaven, then you must find another source. And that's what the scribes do. They make two specific accusations against Jesus. First, they say in verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul or Satan. And second, they say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. That's what you have to do when you refuse to accept what's right in front of you. You you have facts and you know that they are true. That's what's going on with the scribes. Uh, Jesus authoritatively casts out demons. Fact. Who could debate that? It's happening right in front of all these people. Jesus miraculously healed people. Fact. Again and again and again. And people are witnessing it. Jesus powerfully later rose from the grave. Fact. And you might say, oh, no, 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 that's not true. It's part of the historical record. 
And every single one of those things was witnessed by not just a handful, but by hundreds and hundreds of people. Internally, you might be saying something like this, I know that those facts are true. I mean, if I'm honest, I know that they are true. But I refuse to accept what's right in front of me. Okay. Well, then you have to find an alternative explanation for other people and for yourself. And that's what the scribes did, and that would be what you are doing. Yes, the facts are in, but they need reinterpreted. This is the work of Satan, they say. To whom do you attribute the power of Jesus? Again, there's all this evidence. I mean, hundreds of people witnessing Jesus walking here on earth recorded in time and space and history. If all that power of healing and casting out demons didn't come from heaven, didn't come from God, then, then where are you attributing it? When you refuse to accept what's right in front of you, it becomes necessary to attribute Jesus' work to another source. And doing that, attributing Jesus' power to another source is absurd. And that's what Jesus says. The logic, whatever it may be, whatever your logic may be, ends up completely failing and falling apart. Jesus is not possessed by a demonic spirit. Look at verses 23 to 26 again. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Uh, Follow that logic. If the source of Jesus' power and authority comes from Satan, as the scribes are, are claiming, if that's what's going on, then when Jesus casts out demons, Satan would actually be opposing himself. Civil war would, would be ravishing his own kingdom which would be its downfall and ruin. And Jesus is just, okay, let's follow the logic. That is absurd. Attributing Jesus' power to Satan. And where this text is going, Jesus is not possessed by a demonic spirit. What does the evidence point to? The evidence that the scribes are looking at. Jesus is not possessed by a demonic spirit. No, no, no. Jesus possesses something. He is not possessed. He is the possessor of something. Jesus possesses the Spirit of God. And the source of his power to cast out demons is God's Spirit. Jesus possesses the Spirit of God. Look at verse 27, really, which I think is probably the heart of this text. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Uh, If you look back up at the previous verses, the the house language was used and somebody's house was talked about. Somebody's kingdom, somebody's realm was being spoken of. Jesus' power was clearly seen. It was being put on display right in front of the scribes. And in this parable in verse 27, the strong man, who is that? It's Satan. He's strong. He has power. And a house is mentioned, and if if you just follow the previous verses, 
the house, that, that's Satan's kingdom. It's, it's, it's his domain. It's his, his realm. And he has possessions. People enslaved. People demon-possessed. The, par- the point of this parable is, is something like this. Powerful, almighty Jesus had been repeatedly entering Satan's domain, binding him and liberating those possessed by him. The strong man Satan had met one who is far mightier than him, and Jesus is plundering Satan, so to speak. Jesus is setting captives free, and no one can stop him. Those who live in darkness... Those enslaved by sin and sickness and demon possession and death, Jesus is powerfully setting them free. And he's releasing them from their bondage and he's making them new and whole and giving them life. And people are witnessing this. Jesus sets captives free and no one can stop him. The scribes were not witnessing Satan's power, but the power of the Spirit of God at work through Jesus Christ in the lives of people. It was there for all to see, just as it is today. Attributing Jesus' power to another source is absurd, and we could go further and and note that attributing Jesus' power to another source is total blasphemy. And that's the word used in verse 29 to describe the sin that the scribes were guilty of. Uh, They were speaking all these derogatory words against uh, Jesus and the Spirit of God specifically again and again and again and again. Look at verses 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's an amazing statement on the willingness of God to forgive sin. All sin. A remarkable statement. And then verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. In verse 28, Jesus explains that there is not a sinner or, 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 or a sin beyond the reach of his cleansing and his forgiveness. And maybe we should just pause there for a second. You may be sitting here thinking, God would never forgive me. Jesus would never forgive me. I, mean, I have done, I, I am the worst of the worst of the worst. I am beyond the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the cleansing of God. And yet right there in this verse, verse 28, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. God is a God who's willing to forgive sin and cleanse the greatest of sinners. However, there is one sin that God will not forgive, which has sometimes been called the unpardonable sin. Look at verse 29 again. Here it is. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That's the unpardonable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And whatever it was, if the scribes hadn't committed it already, they were dangerously close. The Bible is clear that attributing Jesus' power to another source is dangerous. Verse 29 and 30 again. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then catch what verse 30 says, for they were saying, not just once, this is what they were saying, 
again and again and again. He has an unclean spirit. Much has been said and written about the unpardonable sin and what it is and if it could be committed today. Let me just highlight a few things that we've seen in the text so far. Uh, The scribes were very much exposed to the light and rejected it because they preferred darkness. Here's all this light. Here's all this revelation. Here's all this evidence. How could you deny it? And yet seeing all that light, they said, we love darkness. No, we don't want that. We refuse to believe that. No, absolutely not. And no, again and again and again and again. They were attributing the Holy Spirit's power displayed in and through the work of Jesus to Satan. And as I mentioned, they were saying this repeatedly. Verse 30, they were, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The, the verb tense there uh, in the original language for the word saying, is, it's in the imperfect tense, which we're familiar with from English. Uh, and what it suggests is something that, that's happening. It's ongoing. And so what we have here suggested is an attitude Uh, A resolved state of being, not just like some one-time offense. These, These scribes have been exposed to the piercing light of Jesus Christ again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And every time they say, no, we know that he's God, but no, we refuse to accept it and bow before him. They were experiencing and had experienced a progressive hardening, which is often how, thing, how it works with hardening. It's often progressive, much like the way that calluses are formed. If you sit here today and you're worried that you may have committed the unpardonable sin, let me assure you that you have not. Because those who have committed the unpardonable sin do not care. You get to that point, you do not care. I've seen all the light. I've seen it again and again. And no, 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 and no, and no. At its core, the unpardonable sin, I think if we just boil it down to, is it possible to to commit it today? At its core, the unpardonable sin is really the ultimate and final refusal to accept Jesus as Savior. You never do that. I think there's a, Uh, This text is very uncomfortable and it's heavy and it's sobering. And I think we should just pause and think for a moment of of this reality that you could get to the point where you do not have to teach yourself to reject Jesus or make some kind of conscious effort to do that. You could get to the point where you do it naturally. And maybe I could just give you an illustration that I think might be helpful from the human body. When a person makes a practice of putting food in his mouth and tasting it and experiencing it and then putting his finger in his mouth and puking all that food back up again, something happens over time when a person makes a practice of that. And eventually, self-induced vomiting will no longer be needed because the body will reject the food on its own. The scribes were saying the same thing about Jesus again and again and again after being exposed to the light, after seeing it. They chose darkness. 
again and again and again and again. And no doubt each time they did that, they became a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder until there's no light to actually be seen, even though it's right there in all of its blazing glory. If I could give you a word of warning and say it in love, but also in the seriousness and weight of this text, you should repent while you still can if you've seen the light of Jesus Christ and embrace Jesus as the Savior of the world. Don't make the faulty assumption that somehow tomorrow your heart will be tender to the work of God. If you actively choose to reject the light that you have seen, you know Jesus is God. You know that he is the Savior of the world. You know that he is the only one who could ever set a captive free. No, I don't want that. No, I don't want that. Don't assume that, that tomorrow that you will. Repent while you can and embrace Jesus as the Savior of the world. Refusing to accept what's right in front of you is a manifestation of unbelief. Jesus is the Son of God, and he came to set captives free. A third possible response to the evidence, you could respond by misidentifying the family of God. People do this all the time. Uh, you, can miss, you can start by misidentifying Jesus. That's what his brothers did. Look back at verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is God's son. But his earthly brothers certainly didn't see that. We know that Mary did from Luke and the early chapters of Luke and Mary's what we call Magnificat. She she knew and understood, but his brothers, no. If you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God, then you have misidentified him. You can misidentify Jesus, and along with that, you can misidentify yourself. Here's the reality. You can be close, and yet outside the family of God. Jesus' brothers were probably good Jews who had every reason to think that they were part of the family of God. I mean, what we know about Mary and Joseph, they were top-notch. And their heart and love and obedience to the Lord. Think about the home that these boys grew up in. It would have been a faithful Jewish home. And so these men probably believe and have every reason to think that they're part of the family of God. They've grown up as good Jewish boys. They probably have a ton of morality. And they were so close to God in a sense, yet simultaneously they were so far away from him. It's like this close and that far away. You know that that could be you? You could have a significant history with God. You could believe in God. You could believe in the Bible. You could have significant church background. You could have a rich Christian heritage. A mom and a dad who who love Jesus and have loved the church and have been faithful to God. 
You could have a wealth of Scripture knowledge. I mean, you could know so much Bible. And you could have a life busy with Christianity and church involvement. You may have some kind of proximity to Jesus and God the Father. But that does not mean that you are part of the family of God and that you're on your way to heaven. And, and, and you may sit there and think, oh, I think I am. Well, so did, no doubt Jesus' brothers did too. You could be lost and destined for God's eternal wrath. Jesus' brothers were. And here's the good news. Uh, while, while it may be true that you can be close to God and outside the family of God, or you may be close and yet simultaneously outside the family of God, you can be part of the family of God. And Jesus, in very simple terms, explains what that looks like in verses 31 to 35. Let me read it again. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Who's who's part of the family of God? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. When Jesus' family shows up to seize him, as they set out to do, because they were thinking that he was completely and totally out of his mind, When they show up, Jesus is in a house teaching. He's surrounded by a crowd. And his earthly family is outside. They can't get in, as was often the case in these these crowded situations. And eventually, word makes its way from Jesus' family outside all the way to where he's at teaching uh, that Jesus is out there, or that, that his family's out there, and they want to see him. They're seeking him. And Jesus takes that moment to clarify who his real family is. It's not always the people who see themselves as being part of the family of God or who would lay claim to Jesus in some way. The true family of God, the true family of Jesus, consists of those, Jesus says, who, who do the will of God. What did he mean by that? Well, I think in the, the simplest of terms, when he spoke about people who, who do the will of God, He was talking about people who repent and believe the gospel. Remember chapter 1, when Jesus shows up on the scene and he's preaching? Look at chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is a message from heaven. And saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, which means good news. Who is part of the family of God? People who, by the grace of God, have done that. They've repented and they've believed in the gospel. Uh, The story ends really well for Jesus' brothers. I mean, this is a hard, hard text of Scripture. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. But there's more Bible than than what we have the time to look at today in great detail. But the story ends so well for Jesus' brothers. They eventually do repent of their sins. And they eventually do trust in Jesus to save them from their sins. And those men gave us part of this book. 
the book of James. Do you know who James was? James is the brother of Jesus who, in this text, is showing up in Capernaum to go drag Jesus back home because he's deranged and out of his mind. You know, at the end of this book, there's another book called Jude. Who was Jude? The brother of Jesus? I mean, these guys did not believe. And Jesus dies on the cross, he rises from the grave, and at some point, they believe. They see it, their eyes are open, and they realize Jesus is not just our earthly brother. He came from heaven, he is God. And he sets captives free, and having been delivered from their sin by Jesus, having confessed it and acknowledged it and put their trust in their earthly brother, the Son of God, Jesus himself, they were set free. And they went from bondage like that, and you read the opening of their books, and do you know what they call themselves? They call themselves slaves to a new master. We, We were in bondage, and now we've been set free, and now we're slaves to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. You could have responded to what you've seen by thinking that you are part of God's family when you are not. And and that's a manifestation of unbelief. Jesus is the Son of God. And he came to set captives free and he wants you to respond by, Lord, I believe that. I believe you're God and I believe that you can save me based on what you did. Will you set me free? Will you cleanse me? I am yours. The fourth response to the evidence would then be this. You could respond by believing that Jesus was sent from heaven to set you free. And truthfully, that's the only right response. Jesus is God. And he has the power and authority to set you free from sin and its power. He has the power to release you from Satan's domain. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And he rose again from the grave. What does Jesus want you to do? The exact same thing that his brothers ended up doing. Repent of your sin. Say, God, I am a sinner. I'm not going to deny that. I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I am in bondage and slavery. Will you set me free? Confess your sin to God and ask Jesus to save you based on who he is and what he's done. Jesus is the Son of God. He came to set captives free. And some in unbelief think that Jesus has a problem. Jesus has a problem. Jesus is the problem. And others find that Jesus is indeed the answer. He is the answer. He is the Son of God. And he came to set you free. Would you bow your head at this time and